I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. From the moon landing to universal translators, science fiction's offered us visions of our technological future. Some completely bonkers, others prescient. Take the Star Trek original series from 1966. You can't deny the communicator... Kirk Enterprise, Spock here looks exactly like a mobile flip phone from 1996. I read you, Captain. Let's have it. Or how about the facial recognition and targeted advertising of 2002's Minority Report? Hello, Mr. Yakamoto. Welcome back to The Gap. How those assorted tank tops work out for you? Mr. Yakamoto. Artificial intelligence may be our current cultural obsession, thanks to ChatGPT, but the idea of humans creating artificial life goes back deep in our mythology. Way back in the year 8, Ovid's poem Pygmalion was about an artist who falls in love with a sculpture that then comes to life. From that to Shelley's monster in the book and movie versions of Frankenstein, it's alive, it's alive. to Hal in the 1968 film 2001 A Space Odyssey, I'm sorry Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. And about a million other AI characters we've come to love and fear. You could say speculative visions of science fiction have come to frame our collective imagination of potential futures. And sci-fi authors may have something to teach us about the role imagination can play in our political and cultural life. This time on Spark, a repeat of an episode that originally aired in June 2023, a look at the expansive history, impact and potential of science fiction. Science fiction has, you know, about a 150-year history, right? A lot of people nowadays like to attribute the beginning of the genre to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This is Jerry Canavan. An associate professor and the chair of the English department at Marquette University. Jerry also co-edited the Cambridge Companion to American Science Fiction. It's a collection of essays that explores science fiction's influence across media and the broader culture. His work has focused on the history of the genre, from its predecessors to its current form. It passes through writers like Poe and Verne and Wells, many of whom who didn't understand themselves as writing something that was distinct from other types of genres or understood it to be the Gothic or something like that. The term itself is only coined in the 20s as an advertising scheme for one of the pulp magazines. Early science fiction into that kind of golden age in the 30s, 40s and 50s was really focused on kind of technological innovation, the transformation of human society, using science and academic knowledge to kind of transform the human. Lots of great stories from that period. It's some of the stuff that I I came up reading. Lots of the kids and teenagers who, like Jerry, grew up reading these stories from the golden age, went on to write their own science fiction stories in the 60s and 70s. And they tended to have a more sophisticated kind of transformative vision of it. They called themselves the new wave. And they 
kind of turned science fiction on its head a little bit, focused a lot more on the negative, the dystopian, right? The elements of it that might give us some pause. They became a lot more aware of empire and that, you know, when you go to another planet and take it over, regardless of whether the indigenous population is happy about it, you, you've committed a crime, right? Right. Jerry says the new wave eventually structured what science fiction is today. It's kind of in a dialogue with itself now between utopianism and dystopianism. The ideas presented in the golden age of science fiction can seem dated, but it was central to the rise of the genre and the classics that make up its canon. It includes writers like Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and Robert A. Heinlein, the big three of that period. For most of them, they had a story that more or less began on Earth. Human beings would move out into the larger solar system and then to other solar systems elsewhere in the galaxy and then the rest of the galaxy and take over the universe. And usually it ends up with them confronting God or replacing God in some way, right? The kind of total mastery of the human race over the natural world. And that that's the kind of story that we become really uncomfortable with in the 60s and 70s and start to worry, what would such a story turn us into? And also, you know, are we fooling ourselves and actually nothing like that can happen? Yeah, yeah. And then in that period that's called the new wave, does that include like things like cyberpunk and what we might think of those kind of later movements? The cyberpunks actually thought of themselves as the new wave to the new wave, that they were kind okay. of taking the new wave and turning <laughs> right. themselves on its head. There's always a new and wave. <laughs> science fiction honestly has adopted that strategy that every generation kind of seeks in some way to overthrow <laughs> the earlier folks. So Philip K. Dick, I think, would be an exemplary new wave writer, you know, kind of paranoid, interested in new modes of transcendent consciousness that aren't necessarily rational or legal. Ursula K. Le Guin is a writer that's associated with that. Samuel R. Delaney, who was a major early Afrofuturist writer. Uh, Octavia Butler kind of comes in at the end of that period as a, the first black woman, uh, more or less anywhere, who's making her living writing science fiction. So there's a lot more diversity. There's a lot more anxiety about, you know, all these white men from Iowa kind of conquering the universe, right? And just starting to think yeah. about who's getting left out of those stories. As you say, the genres changed over time in terms of what it celebrates and what has become more... Uh, critical of or suspicious of. Can can you expand on that a little bit about how it's evolved and the nature of the concerns? For me, I, I tend to work a lot on ecological science fiction, and that's one of those things that kind of emerges in the 60s and 70s as a concern, right? That not only is it maybe the case that there's nothing good in outer space, right? There's no reason for us to go up there. We can't live on Mars. We can't live on the moon realistically, right? It would be a nightmare to try to make human life viable in those places. But in the meantime, the, the technological innovations that were supposed to save us from ourselves are actually destroying the planet, right? And so the 60s kind of is that moment of ecological dawning, right, where people start to realize this about the world. The concerns about the bomb turns into more generalized concerns about DDT and pollution, right? There's an overpopulation panic in the 70s, right? And all of these things wind up really being part of science fiction, that maybe the future is a story of how humanity destroyed the planet rather than a story about how we conquered the universe. So the movement of science fiction has in some ways paralleled the sort of general cultural perception of technology and, and what technology can can do for us or to us. Absolutely. I, I You know, almost all the great science fiction writers say that they're not trying to predict the future, they're trying to predict the present. And there's this kind of moment of, looking at what's going on and kind of thinking through it. And you look at those old stories and it was supposed to be that we would have flying cars and free energy, right? And, you know, mm. all the moon launches and Mars launches would be happening daily, right? And there'd be right. space cruises, <laughs> right? And instead, we're, we're living in a very different kind of 
world that feels like it's just spiraling out of control. And mm-hmm. so science fiction, you know, very much reflects that and, and drives that in some ways, right? The science fiction stories we tell become the stories that uh, we think about when something new like Tesla's auto drive or ChatGPT emerges to kind of explain to ourselves what we think about that. Yeah, I mean, your work over the years has focused on, and this is a quote, one of the most culturally important and globally influential genres of the post-war United States. So what is it about science fiction that makes it such an important genre? Well, I, I think it just registers a fight over the future, right? Like it's how we think about what the future will look like, right? 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now. There was a moment earlier in like human civilization where religion would have done that for us, right? Religion was the grounding by which everybody kind of thought through what things mean and how to understand them. And as the world became more secular and religion lost some of its explanatory power, science steps in and science fiction becomes the way that kind of normal people who aren't experts talk about science and talk about what science entails, right? So when we think about, you know, for instance, machine learning, our first reference are all robot stories about robots trying to take over the world. Mm -hmm. And ChatGPT doesn't look like that, but that's the first thing we try to think through, right? Same thing with genetic engineering. We think about Gattaca, right? Or um, overpopulation or in the environment, we think about Soylent Green, right? And these other sorts of stories about uh, universal deprivation. Yeah. But are there things about the way that science fiction writers reflect on the world that, that are sort of particular in terms of what we can learn from them as distinct from, say, nonfiction writers? I have two answers to that. Uh, one is kind of pro-science fiction and one is a little more anti-science fiction. <laughs> so so on the one hand, science fiction writers have always kind of been very dedicated to getting the facts right as a genre, right? There is a weird sort of extra aesthetic quality where it's like, does this story tell the truth about physics or chemistry or does it not? And there's a famous story where Asimov was talking about a story he wrote that got the rotation of mercury wrong. And he and he's like, well, I can't I can't sit here and be beholden to the scientists always changing their mind. I have to write my fiction. Right. <laughs> but by and large, he he was a scientist, too, and he wanted to get it right. So there is that sort of reality check thing that science fiction does. The other thing is more just a literary form. Science fiction very often kind of mirrors a kind of logic of mastery, right? Like you enter into a a narrative context, you don't understand the story world, you don't understand what the rules are. And by the end, you and your, you know, as the focal point character now understands everything. They're the master of time and space. They probably have some powers or something, right? Or like, you know, they've taken over, they've, they've leveled up. And science fiction really appeals to that sense of like mastering the world that appeals to a certain type of person. I think it's why famously the golden age of science fiction is 12, right? Like that's when people really want to read this type of story <laughs> because it mirrors their own anxiety about growing up and what what kind of person they're going to be. And that extends to its kind of normal applications, right? It's like we argue about science fiction because we want to master the future, right? We want to know what's going to happen before it happens. And so that's part of why these stories circulate. It's like it feels like prophecy somehow, even though its record as prophecy is pretty spotty. You're listening to Spark from CBC Radio. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about the evolution and cultural impact of science fiction. Right now, my guest is Jerry Canavan, Associate Professor of 20th and 21st Century Literature at Marquette University. He's also the co-editor of an anthology book called Uneven Futures, Strategies for Community Survival from Speculative Fiction, which gathered over 40 writers to reflect on the importance and diversity of sci-fi stories spanning 200 years, from books to TV shows. Are there sort of areas of society or real world problems 
kind of in particular that, that would benefit from this type of thinking or this, this way of thinking about the future? I almost think exclusively through science fictional frames. So I think a lot of them will. If you think about, you know, for instance, questions about who counts in society and who gets left out, science fiction is preoccupied with this question and typically comes to the right answer, which is that everybody who's a person needs to be included, right? It thinks that through about aliens. It thinks that through about robots, which are almost always parables of slavery. And it thinks that about animals, right? Like science fiction is a place that's far advanced of everywhere else, generically speaking of like, what do you do with an animal that we know can feel, we know can think, they can't talk to us, right? But we can recognize on some level that the things we're doing are hurting them. Science fiction, I think, really compels people to think outside common sense, right? And start to think more expansively about what rights look like. Mm -hmm. I find dystopian or not, like depressing or not, ecological science fiction is incredibly useful for thinking about what this world is going to look like as global warming, like this process that started a hundred years before any of us were even born, right, uh, continues to transform the world, right? And it's galvanizing, right, to to read those stories and, and think about what might have to happen to people and then how we can try to prevent the worst of it. Yeah, there's this, this whole sort of subgenre of cli-fi, right? Like science fiction about climate change and the climate crisis. What is it about climate change that makes it such a, a ripe spot for that kind of speculation? <sighs> Well, it's terrifying, right? I mean, that's, right, I think right. that it makes for a good yeah. story world because it's the flip side of the fact that everybody can see this happening and nobody wants to talk about it. The fact that it feels true, it feels mechanistic in some way, right? Like with this much carbon in the air and these patterns, this is what will happen, right? When I look at you know, the last 20, 30 years of science fiction, almost all of it has some kind of ecological dimension, right? It's all about climate change in some way, trying to think through either in very literal terms, like somebody like Kim Stanley Robinson, who wrote a book about the 2020s called The Ministry of the Future, where people are trying to, to turn back the worst of climate change, to something like Pacific Rim, which is a story about monsters that come out of the ocean, but it's just like, that's about rising sea levels. It's about coastal cities being destroyed. It's just turned into a fantasy story about something you can punch in the face. But it's still trying to work through the anxiety of like, what is the future going to look like for the people who are young today? Yeah, yeah. In 2013, as I understand it, you received a grant to analyze the archives of the late Octavia E. Butler, the award-winning science fiction writer. And that eventually led to a book. So can you tell me a bit about the impact that she in particular had on the genre? Yeah, she, she's absolutely brilliant person. She's one of those people, you know, was well recognized at the time, especially towards the end of her life, but has now been kind of recognized as just the person who saw the future, right? Like she is one of those people who gets that that mantle of profit, right? There's a kind of recurring Twitter hashtag, Octavia knew, Octavia tried to tell us, right? Octavia tried to warn us. I think of the 80s and 90s as a moment of like American optimism. And she was the person who was like, there's some really bad stuff under the surface here that is going to come out, right? And so in her parables books, which predict the 2020s, right, America has kind of collapsed due to a cascade of ecological, economic, and political crises, right? And one of the big crises is that there's a fascist dictator who runs on the slug and make America great again. So it's just this, this kind of constant sense of like, it's all there in Octavia Butler if we just knew how to read it properly. It's dangerous to assume that we can actually see the future by only looking at the technological advancements we've made so far. She was a black woman writing at a time where the genre really understood both its authorship and its readership to be white men. And just 
really opened the door to a world where there's now many black women and women of other marginalized background writing science fiction who stand at different relationships to Octavia Butler, uh, many kind of openly inspired by her. She really established a new trajectory for things. It seems like dystopian narratives, at least right now, dominate in film and television and books. But do you think there's a downside to all of that? I mean, just in the sense of a level of fear mongering that shapes how we view the technology. Like we have these fears about AI gone rogue that aren't grounded in reality rather than looking at actual problems of making AI work for us fairly and equitably. Like, is there a danger in pushing the dystopian? So I have a, a somewhat strange answer to this just because I, I tend to draw a distinction between the dystopian and the anti-utopian. Okay. The utopian is the good place, right? It's the perfect society. The dystopia is the bad place. It's the bad government, the bad situation, right? These kinds of apocalyptic disasters. But almost all of those are really utopian stories in disguise because they're almost always about heroes who can change the society that they're in through revolution or they can flee it or at some base level, a warning to us in the present to not let that situation happen. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking of my dissertation advisor, Frederick Jameson, one of the great utopian thinkers in American thought, right? He said like, Utopia and dystopia are kind of versions of each other. It's almost like a matter of taste. And it's the anti-utopians that you got to watch out for. The anti-utopians are the enemy in the sense that they're the ones who tell us there's no hope at all, right? There's nothing you can do that can improve society. There's no possibility for resistance or revolution or historical transformation. And so that's where I kind of allow myself to be inspired. It is a little depressing that the Anglo-Canadian-American market doesn't seem to like very much utopian stories. We don't seem to believe in them. <laughs> but I do think we're, you know, through the back door, we are having our utopian speculations when we imagine these dystopian scenarios that you could actually fix. Earlier, we were talking about how science fiction has evolved over the course of its history. But what are some of the challenges facing the genre today? Well, I think a big problem is that the old problem of, of that it's hard to imagine the future, right? And it's hard to imagine the future from a position of living in the present with your own assumptions, right? Like we're living in a moment of like total transformation of so much, right? Uh, it's been called the post-normal, right? Where it's the world we grew up in is just never coming back. And so I think people are wrestling with that in different ways. Some people wind up being intensely nostalgic or almost reactionary in the desire to like force the world to go back to the way it was. And other people maybe become locked in a certain sort of pessimism, right, about a world that they can't renew itself. And then I think the best of science fiction remains a project of trying to, you know, invigorate a sense of hope and optimism in a world that seems dangerous. So I don't think science fiction has changed a lot. I think it's it's undergone some growing pains as those different camps have kind of started to talk to one another over the internet in ways that maybe they didn't a few years ago. If you look at things like the way science fiction gives out its awards, right, have become sites of like open combat between camps really? of people. Yeah, so... The Hugo Award, a famous fan award in science fiction. A couple of years ago, a group of fans who tended to be more on the right wing, even to the point of the extreme right wing, kind of organized slates. And they're like, we're going to vote for our kind of science fiction. We're going to take the genre back from all these new people. And that year, it kind of you can see it in the record because basically everybody agreed to give no award to anybody to spite those people. And then there was a kind of period of emergence of different slates kind of arguing back and forth about what the vision of the genre should be. And, you know, to this day, there's people who think I read science fiction to escape, not to read a bunch of depressing stuff. And other people for whom, you know, they they read the same story and say, you know, this saved my life. This showed me uh, that the world can be different. And do you think science fiction ultimately really is always about the present rather than about the future? I, I think basically any kind of artistic creation in the end could be reduced to a statement like that, right? Like we're all in some level trying to make sense of our own world and what 
inspires us about it, what makes us afraid about it. I do think what's special about science fiction is that it almost always is like focalized through this lens of futurity or through difference, right? Like trying to imagine that the world could be different. And since that is the first step in making it different is imagining that it could be different. I think it has a kind of particular relationship with the future that's really special. There is a certain level of just inspiration that comes from looking at the world and saying like, if you change these three things, everything could be different. Jerry, thanks so much for your insights on this. Oh, thanks for having me. Jerry Canavan is associate professor and chair of the English department at Marquette University in Milwaukee. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. Clark, in your book, Profiles of the Future, at the back of it, you have a chart indicating the future, and you have set out a timetable as to what uh, the future holds in the way of scientific development, as you see it. Uh, You've indicated the possibility of artificial intelligence by the year 2000. What do you mean by that? Yes, well, this, in fact, is something which uh, we have in the movie, this uh, computer Hal, who uh, takes over the uh, operation. Many computer scientists think that we will develop, before the end of the century, machines which are intelligent by any way you care to define that word. In fact, there are some computers now that can carry on conversations with you over an electric typewriter, and people just will not believe they are talking to a machine. But uh, many scientists think that in the next century, we will have machines which are more intelligent than us. And of course, this may be one of the great divides in history. Nora Young, and you're listening to Spark. Right now, we're talking about the expansive history, impact, and potential of science fiction in helping us imagine our collective futures. In recent years, we've heard news stories that make you wonder if life is stranger than science fiction. Take the story about a startup that offered people retinal implants that gave them artificial vision. The company went bankrupt and left its clients in limbo when the implants failed or the reversal of a decision by San Francisco police to use killer robots after public outcry just last year. Science fiction stories can sometimes depict future real-world events. But as we talked about with Jerry, the power of science fiction doesn't necessarily lie in being literally prescient, but in articulating a kind of analogy that lets us feel the tensions and implications of what it might be like to be in a given future. These stories help us think about our world today, what it should look like, and how we might want it to be different, unmoored from the belief that nothing could ever change. Imagination is one of those words. Everybody knows it's important. Nobody really knows what it means. This is Ed Finn. Hi. An academic and author who examines imagination, digital culture, creative collaboration, and the future. And I had no idea that all of the science fiction that I read as a kid would turn out to be so important later on. 
Ed is the founding director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University, a place where people from the humanities and the sciences work together to create visions of the future. His love of science fiction growing up is what led him to think more about the role of these stories in our collective relationship with the future. It was also really powerful to build up my own imaginative capacity to recognize, oh, the world can be otherwise. You know, you can organize things in completely different ways. And science fiction was an early signal that not only can you do that, but you can do that in ways that are really thought-provoking and change your own reality. You know, that the, the, the news from other planets comes back and changes our planet. There are many ways that sci-fi stories across media have actually inspired technological development and innovation, something Ed calls the science fiction feedback loop. Science fiction is how we explore different possible narratives that will frame and shape what we think is even possible. So science fiction writers are constantly reading technical journals and talking to scientists and engineers. There are quite a number of STEM people who are also science fiction writers, you know, there's this feedback loop that science fiction is always looking to the cutting edge of our current technological world as the place to jump off from. That's the diving board or the launch pad for what they want to do. And at the same time, they're inspiring young people to go into these fields. They're, in some cases, really setting the agenda. If you think about a show like Star Trek and how over decades it's inspired a lot of different people in the abstract, but also in the particular, like the flip phone was inspired by the communicator yeah. to go out and build that stuff. So that feedback loop is very powerful. And it's like there are these different groups of people around the edges of the same lake. And that lake is imagination. And sometimes, you know, they sail a boat across or they're, they're communicating with one another, but they're feeding off of the same ideas. It's all part of the same shared imaginary of what the future can be. But so can you walk me through how that actually happens? Like how does a fictional device like the communicator from Star Trek eventually become something that we can buy and use in our daily lives? We think back to the original Star Trek, the characters, the original series, they had these communicators and they used them when somebody was beamed down to a planet. We haven't built some of these other technologies, unfortunately, you know, the transporter is pretty cool. But the communicator <laughs> was this handheld device, right? And it worked anywhere. It didn't have any wires and it was very small. So it was a personal communication device you could use to talk to people on the ship. And in that way, it was a great science fictional idea. Of course, they missed the vast consequences of what it would mean to have things like that. Smartphones, right? The internet, mm -hmm. social media, all of that stuff. Almost no science fiction writers predicted anything like that. But they got the hardware right. And there was a Motorola engineer who has talked about how he was inspired by the communicator when he was designing the first flip phone because he was looking at those principles. Like, well, we want it to be small, lightweight, wireless, work anywhere. And I think it was the flipping itself that was in part inspired by the communicator. So the interesting thing is, well, what happens when this new technology is actually made in the world? Okay, now you've got cell phones. Now you're starting to talk about text messaging. You can imagine all of the, the slow rolling and continuing unfurling of that technology, right? We're still not done figuring out what cell phones are doing to us as a civilization yeah. and what they will continue to do. And then that feeds back into science fiction, right? So later science fiction will engage with the idea of these smart communication devices, will engage with the internet, will engage with social media. And so the imaginary keeps building off of what has happened before. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
What about this idea of like, I've heard it called science fiction prototyping or, or like speculative design in terms of fleshing out the, these notions from science fiction. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a little bit closer to what we do at the Center for Science and the Imagination, which is really not just to recognize that this feedback loop exists, but to say, what could we do if we harness science fiction? And especially if we try to use it to ask important questions about what we should be doing now in order to get to positive futures that we want, instead of investing all of our energy and freaking out about the things that we don't want or reimagining the status quo. So science fiction prototyping and design fiction and speculative design, all of these are different approaches to a very similar idea, which is, can we use the power of storytelling about the future as a toolkit to create experiences of the future? And one of the great things about stories and also things like prototypes, physical objects, so you could think about a prop from Star Trek as an example of that, is that they make the future feel visceral and real. And what a good story does is it invites you to step into a possible future and not just Mm. think about it, not just imagine the blueprints of some new technology, but actually feel in that future because you empathize. You think about the characters in that future. You imagine what our humanity will be like in this new context. And that's a really powerful exercise. Nora Young, today on Spark, we're talking about the power of the imagination and science fiction storytelling in inspiring real-world innovation. Right now, my guest is Ed Finn, the director of the Center for Science and the Imagination. Ed also co-leads the Applied Sci-Fi Project at the Center, which has gathered science fiction writers, futurists, and technologists to investigate how science fiction stories can shape the development of real-world technologies, what he calls the science fiction feedback loop. I think one of the most important roles of science fiction is actually to imagine society in the future, because it's not just about the tech. It's not just about the hardware. It's about what room is it going to be in? Is it going to be in the kitchen? You know, what buttons does this thing have on it? How do you keep it powered? Who's going to pay for it? Who gets to (laughs) use it? And it's all of that, you know, very real social reality that, you know, we had electric cars 100 years ago. There was a demonstration of wireless communicator in uh, the early 1910s. You know, it's not just the technology itself. It's when society is ready for new technologies and how those technologies change the way Mm. we live. I mean, I was struck by some of the background reading I was doing this week that about the idea of science fiction futures giving people almost like a shorthand vision that they can hold on to. And it made me think about you know, whether all organizations ought to have this kind of creative visions that's much easier to hold on to than a mission statement, right? Like everyone knows what a communicator is and can kind of connect, okay, this is what we're doing. What's the world of the communicator rather than some sort of dry mission statement? Do you think that like just beyond science fiction, that art in general has a a role to play here? So it's important to recognize first that we're always telling stories about the future and we're, we're always imagining a kind of reality. You know, sometimes people talk about failures of imagination or a crisis of imagination, especially in light of things like the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, how do we not do better? You know, how do we not prepare for this and anticipate how bad this would be? And it's not that we aren't imagining. It's just that we invest so much of our energy in imagining the status quo. So mm-hmm. the stories are always there. It's really a question of changing the stories or creating space for new stories about the future. 
But there's a, I like to quote Neil Stevenson about this going back to hieroglyph. And he said, a, a good science fiction story can save you hundreds of hours of PowerPoints and meetings because it literally <laughs> puts everyone on the same page. And that's where the word hieroglyph came from, by the way, is this notion of iconic big picture ideas from science fiction that have driven lots of real innovation. So Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics have been cited by thousands of engineering papers or Jules Verne and his rocket ships, or Robert Heinlein's rocket ships, you know, these stories that really defined an imaginary around what technological progress might look like. And they are really sticky. They hang around and they shape the edges of what we think is possible in all sorts of interesting ways. Mm -hmm. You know, Ed, as a technology show, we often find ourselves referencing Minority Report when we're talking about possible futures of technology and, and of machine learning. What's your favorite prescient work of fiction? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> I am going to go back to an oldie, which is Frankenstein, Mary oh, okay. Shelley's novel, which some people point to as the originator, the cornerstone of the modern science fiction genre. We did a big Frankenstein project, and we published a new edition of the book annotated for students today, scientists, engineers, and creators of all kinds. But my favorite thing I learned in the course of doing all of that work is that Mary Shelley's character, Victor Frankenstein, the original mad scientist, predates the first use of the word scientist by almost 20 years. So before we even had the word to describe someone as a, the profession of the scientist in that particular way, we had this character, this cautionary tale, this flawed figure exploring the boundaries of scientific creativity and responsibility. So in a funny way, you know, Shelley's book is not a really science heavy book, even though she was very caught up on the emerging technologies of her day, but it's a moral and philosophical adventure story about what it means to to take on these boundaries of knowledge and to try to be creative and make new things, do big stuff. And what are the consequences? How do we take responsibility for the things we make? Yeah, just had its 200th anniversary, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. Why do you think that it continues to be so relevant so long after it was written? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you can put the prefix Franken in front of anything and open up a whole <laughs> right. box of issues, right? Push yeah. a whole bunch of buttons in our minds about how should we be thinking about this thing. And I think that's because Mary Shelley was one of the first people to put her finger on this, this deep anxiety we have, which really came out of the Industrial Revolution and the sort of culmination of the Western Enlightenment around knowledge, the power of knowledge, and mm. what we're trying to do. Are we trying to become gods? Are we trying to become better people? Are we trying to make people or things that are better than us? You know, these are really deep questions and they are just as relevant now as they were then. And so she was incredibly prescient in figuring out that those were the right questions to be asking and exploring them in this incredible book, you know, that she wrote. Yeah. And, you know, when we did our Frankenstein project, it was all about how does this help us think about the next 200 years? Nora Young. And right now, my guest is Ed Finn, the director of the Center for Science and the Imagination. We're talking about the useful applications of science fiction storytelling in fostering innovation. We are really driven by the stories we tell, and we tend to tell the same stories over and over again. So when it comes to AI and robots, we've been grappling with a lot of the same questions for quite a long time. You can think of Frankenstein as a robot story, too, or an artificial mm -hmm. intelligence story. And 
when you think about the stories we tell about robots now, there's a few that are just keep coming back over and over again. There's the killer robot story, the Terminator. I'll be back. Yeah. There's the robot girlfriend slash robots that passes human story, like mm -hmm. Westworld. I think there may be something wrong with this world. There's the God machine, right? The the super intelligence that is going to just take over everything. And there are cautionary tales, and that kind of cautionary tale is really important. It's good to have a yardstick to measure and say, this is a future we don't want, or we inching closer to this bad outcome. But what we need much more are grounded, hopeful stories about the near future, because all of those stories really set us up in existential opposition to artificial intelligence. Right. And every time we set ourselves up in that kind of a contest, it's like the American folktale of John Henry, who's the railroad worker who competes against a steam engine to see who can drive railroad spikes faster. And it's an impossible task because, you know, anytime humans are entering these direct contests with machines, we're battling machines and things that we're, we're not actually good at. Because if the machine can do it, then it's probably going to do it faster than a human can more consistently, doesn't need to sleep, doesn't need to eat. So we need better stories and maybe even better metaphors to contend with AI as it exists now. And if we think too much about AI as persons, we're creating new artificial persons, we're really missing the boat because actually what we're creating is a kind of alien intelligence. And it's not an alien intelligence that's totally unfamiliar. Uh, if we look around at the natural world, it might be better to think about the metaphor of a forest or the ocean, that these are big complex systems that we in interact with, but you can swim in the ocean, you can't really talk to the ocean. Right. And that's starting to come up with some new frames for artificial intelligence will, I think, be really important because we need to find ways to collaborate and to enhance and become better at being human rather than trying to compete with these machines or have an argument about, you know, who's more human. <laughs> right. But is there a tension between the demands of science fiction as literature, as, as narrative and imagination as a way to, to sort of start to sketch out the future? Like, I don't know that I would go see a movie about you know, regulatory policy and machine learning, for example, it's not quite as exciting as, as killer robots. Is there a tension there? So this is all about the craft of storytelling, is that's a great point. You know, when we do our projects, we never start with, hey, we have a set of ethics exams for you. You know, come and sit down right. and, and spend <laughs> yeah. some time thinking about the, the moral challenges of AI. What we start with always is, hey, we've got a good yarn for you. We've got a story that was crafted by someone who's a really great storyteller and by the way, it's going to have these interesting questions that you can grapple with or reflect on. But for us, the invitation is always about playfulness and inviting people into something that should feel fun and interesting. And that creating that sense of joy around the future is part of that fundamental shift in our relationship. When people think about the future at all, it tends to be with anxiety or despair these days. And that's that's a really bad dysfunctional relationship. You know, we need to think of the, the future as a kind of playground, a place of possibility. And so stories are a great invitation to people to imagine this stuff. And we've actually done some work around policy futures. And I think science fiction is really helpful because even the people who are working really hard on policy often have a very limited sense of the future they're working towards. You know, you think about people working on the climate negotiations. It's like, well, we want to change this number down to this other number. We have this limited trench warfare activity that we're engaged in here. We're trying to gain a yard of ground here. And that's not going to inspire people. It's not going to inspire the kind of transformative change we need. We need hopeful stories about the futures that we want, things we can work towards rather than things that we're trying to work against. 
Mm-hmm. In response to the limited scope of those representations of AI, my understanding is that the Global Narratives Project out of Cambridge has been gathering local stories about the future of AI across different regions outside the West. How important is that cross-cultural idea? I think it's incredibly important. I think one of the big mistakes we have been making over and over again around AI and a whole bunch of related technologies is this assumption that a bunch of white guys in Silicon Valley are going to be accurately and effectively able to create tools or imagine for themselves a broadly representational user base across the world. And it turns out there are big differences in how different cultures imagine AI and how they relate to AI technologies now. And it's becoming increasingly clear that the narrative frames we bring to our engagements with AI really inform what happens in those engagements. So that work that the Cambridge folks are doing is incredibly important because we need to have a global dialogue about these new tools and technologies. We need to learn from one another and we need to recognize that these tools will have consequences and those consequences may also be diverse. And in fact, they inevitably will be, right? And that the, mm-hmm. the ways that they unfurl and the things that people do with all of these new tools and technologies is going to vary wildly across different contexts. Yeah. Ed, thanks so much for your thoughts on this. Thank you, Nora. This was great. Ed Finn is the director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. You are listening to Spark with Nora Young on CBC Radio. So far on the show, we've been talking about the relationship between science fiction and real-world technological innovation. Earlier, we heard from Ed Finn about the work being done to spotlight non-Western stories about artificial intelligence and other technologies. We also heard Jerry Canavan talk about the barriers overcome by writers like Octavia E. Butler in predominantly male and white spaces like science fiction. But how have people who've historically been left out of the genre used it to tell stories that reflect their own realities? Afrofuturism is a way of looking at futures or alternate realities, but through Black cultural lenses around the world. This is Yatasha Womack. Author of Afrofuturism, the world of Black sci-fi and fantasy culture. She's a Chicago-based filmmaker and futurist, and she's written a series of science fiction novels called The Rayla Universe. Her upcoming book is called Black Panther, A Cultural Exploration. It's a deep dive into the development of the celebrated Marvel character and series, a product of the 60s amid the civil rights movement. The Black Panther has been the protector of Wakanda for generations. A mantle passed from warrior to warrior. Yatasha's work focuses on highlighting the power of Afrofuturism and imagination to envision better worlds and inspire social change. The stories in Afrofuturism and the way they connect with people just help people to understand more about themselves, to see how their communities relate and think about futures, or in the case of people who aren't necessarily in the African diaspora, to think about futures and the wisdom and lessons about how to navigate futures from these stories and from these cultures. The term Afrofuturism was coined in 1993 by writer Mike Derry. It's often referenced as an offshoot of science fiction, but Yatasha says the concept and practice behind it predate both the term and sci-fi as a genre. The relationship that people of the African diaspora and the continent have had to space and time is quite old. 
And I like to remind people that all cultures have relationships to space and time. And when we talk about Afrofuturism, that relationship is evident in cosmologies, philosophy, art, music, dance, architecture, how people commune and language. So the way we think about Afrofuturism today pulls on uh, various approaches to these relationships to space and time around the Mm -hmm. world. And so historically, when you look at like mainstream science fiction, what have been some of the limits to it in terms of diversity and representation? A lot of the canon of what we call science fiction today um, use the metaphor of the alien to represent uh, people around the world who had different beliefs and origins and backgrounds. And so the first use of the term alien didn't necessarily refer to green people in space, it referred to people who were a part of other cultures. And the alien metaphor was usually one where the aliens were coming to take over, or Mm -hmm. they're coming to erase a way of life, or they are so different that you can't relate. How can you possibly commune with the alien? And all of these represent fears that came out of various communities looking to think about otherness. Mm. And what do you think the impacts of that are just on the kinds of worlds that most science fiction tends to imagine? Well, you know, some science fiction is often defined by this idea of if you don't do this one thing, then the the world will implode. You know, if the aliens come, (laughs) they're coming to take over and attack you. If you don't get them away, the universe explodes, you know? I mean, it's always something catastrophic. And there's also this idea, too, that this catastrophe or this apocalypse is something that is pending Mm -hmm. if certain actions aren't taken, as opposed to African-African diasporic cultures acknowledging that the transatlantic slave trade or the colonialism was often an end, you know, a kind of interruption that was apocalyptic in nature. You know, so it gives you a different perspective on timelines to say, oh, no, we're after the apocalypse, um, right. as opposed to some, you know, more mainstream sci-fi, which says, oh, you're moving towards it or you're in it, et cetera. Yeah. Can we follow up on that a little bit? I mean, there tends to be a sort of American and just more broadly Western slant to a lot of science fiction. So how does Afrofuturism get away from that? Well, I think the reference points. You know, oftentimes when we talk about Western spaces, we're not talking about indigenous people of the Americas. You know, we're not necessarily talking about black communities who are in the Americas and being informed by those places uh, where they migrated from forced or otherwise. I think that Afrofuturism kind of pulls from a different array of experiences uh, to create a different set of stories. Now, it's not to say that they aren't using tropes that we're familiar with in sci-fi. Maybe there's cyborgs, maybe there's aliens, but how they might talk about it or think about it might differ from some of the things that were in the canon. Yeah. Are there examples of some of the ways that Afrofuturist narratives have envisioned our technological future that, that come to mind? Well, probably one of the more popular ones would be Black Panther. You know, you're looking at the the comic book, you're looking at the film, you know, this idea of a technologically advanced African society that's hidden 
which actually is a much older idea. There's a book called Of One Blood by Paula Hopkins that was written in the early 20th century, you know, and she too kind of wrote about uh, an African-American man who goes to Ethiopia and finds like this hidden ancient city that's also technologically advanced. So this idea of Sankofa, which is an Akan symbol where you're kind of talking about bringing the best of the past into the future or this notion of it's always okay to go back or to retrieve really points to this idea of, you know, bridging ancient ideas and future ones Mm -hmm. in a way that pulls from some African diasporic or continental spaces and thinking about moving forward. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the criticism that some people have made that Black Panther is too Western? Well, you know, in all fairness, you know, a lot of the storylines did pull from ideas of Black utopias that were coming from a lens of Black people in the Americas. Clearly, people who are in the Americas, if you're coming through forced migrations, you come from a lot of different places. So if you're looking to create a fictive world or to help shape a sort of fictive futuristic world, it would be an amalgamation of a lot of different places. Mm. I've had colleagues of mine who who live in Nigeria who would say, oh, that Black Panther, they thought was a great story, but it almost seemed like retro-futuristic in that it seemed like it was pointing to some dynasties of the past, not entirely of the future. Although they, you know, thought the stories were, were cool and great. I chose Wakanda. Our future depended you on... You are my- wrong! All of you are wrong! What Black Panther reminds us is that there are a lot of ideas about futures, but also that there's a lot of stories. And the Black Panther narrative is one story of many uh, Mm. that have been told and can be told. Yeah. The novelist uh, Nnedi Okorafor is often credited with coining the term African futurism as a less Western iteration of Afrofuturism. What do you make of that? The relationships between how Black people around the world think about futures or alternate realities or their relationships in space and time are going to be shaped in part by where you are and Mm -hmm. when you are. (laughs) But I like to remind people that those relationships, to the extent that they're different, they're complements and still are working with the same themes that we talk about in Afrofuturism, which is this idea of an intersection between liberation, mysticism, and technology, and all through these lenses of Black cultures. Yeah. So in Brazil, you know, they talk about Afrofuturismo. In South Africa, they're talking about Ubuntu futurism. Uh, but at the end of the day, thinking about the way I speak of Afrofuturism has always been as sort of this umbrella term to just look at theoretically relationships between space and time. And we're constantly being informed and learning from all of these vantage points. Yeah. In your 2013 book on Afrofuturism, you talk about the contributions of writers like Octavia Butler, Samuel Delaney, and N.K. Jameson, and what they've made in terms of contributions to Afrofuturism as a genre and as a cultural practice. Could you tell me a little bit more about their impact and, and what they captured in their writing? I think Octavia Butler told the untold story. She was not writing about the typical heroes or heroines. She would take someone like, you know, a young girl in Parable of the Sower. She's in a a world that's turning upside down. And this young woman 
kind of creates a foundational book for the new world to come by literally putting together wisdom and memories into a journal and using that as a guide for the future. Now, you know, if that sort of story was written by others, that wouldn't be a decision that was made by a young girl. It would probably be a group of men who were supposedly wise and older, learned men. And, uh, you know, I have my fingers in air quotes here. And they would be deciding (laughs) what would be the platform for what's to come next. So I think in that sense, you know, she was very unique. And many of the stories that various Afrofuturist authors pull from or the people who they choose to write about aren't usually the heroes in your sci-fi canon and other stories. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, what's the purpose of Afrofuturism in literature and pop culture? Do you see a, a real world use for this sort of world building? I think there are people who have had issues with the imagination. And if you say, hey, envision a future, there are people who have a tough time doing so. And when you start with a bit of storytelling, saying what would you like to see in the future, or just in your the most fantastic sense, what would be ideal, that becomes a form of storytelling or visioning And while it might be for the purpose of conversation, you have to have a vision of where you want to go in order to actually get there. Yeah. And I think that sometimes the storytelling and the processes around it can help people envision that future or think about it. Or they could say, oh, I don't want this future. Or, oh, if I was going to create a world where this issue was resolved, what would that world look like? Um, mm-hmm. that's the, the basis for futures planning. And I think Afrofuturism can play a role in that. Yeah. How have you explored the possibilities of Afrofuturism in your own work and writing? Well, I wrote the book Rayla 2212 and Rayla 2213. And the writing of that story evolved as I was writing my first book on Afrofuturism. So I'm contemplating theory and interviewing people. And then simultaneously, this idea is coming to me. I wrote a book called Spaceship in Bronzeville, which took place in 1950 Chicago. It was the same time period when Sun Ra was in Chicago. And that gave me an opportunity to kind of think about people who had come to Chicago through the Great Migration, thinking about futures. I'm a descendant of that experience. And so to think about how they were thinking about futures and how that relates today clearly was a, a platform for a kind of storytelling that I might not have done otherwise, although I might have thought of those ideas. And then I did a film called A Love Letter to the Ancestors from Chicago, where I was able to think about dance and and music and rhythm as a relationship to space and time. And that became a a great experience to me. So I'm kind of all in (laughs) when it comes to (laughs) Afrofuturism. Yutasha, thanks so much for your insights on this. Oh, thank you. Yutasha Womack is a Chicago-based filmmaker, futurist, and author of Afrofuturism, The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture. You've been listening to an episode of Spark that first aired in June 2023. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarit Johannes, McKenna Hadley-Burke, and me, Nora Young. And by Jerry Canavan, Ed Finn, and Yutasha Womack. And from the Spark archives, Grace Dillon. 
Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.